Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Cynthia Nicoletti about her book, Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Dr. Nicoletti is the class of 1966 research professor of law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Secession on Trial examines the post-Civil War United States as its people attempted to navigate a world where one question continued to loom overhead. Was secession constitutional? Dr. Nicoletti illustrates how to lead up to the treason trial for former Confederate President Jefferson Davis gripped the nation as Americans debated law, war, and the Constitution. Dr. Nicoletti, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So I guess to get started, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this project? Um, well, it's a it's a while back now, um, but I was always interested. Well, I, I think it depends how far back you want me to go, but I was always interested in um, civil war and constitutional issues. But I was looking for a dissertation topic and um, I think I, I had another topic, but my advisor didn't like it. And so he said, go back and find something. Um, and I think I, I had, uh, this is when I was studying for my comprehensive exam. So um, I didn't have a tremendous amount of time to figure it out. And I sat down with, um, I had always been interested in secession, but uh, had no idea that I was going to write about this topic. And uh, my advisor told me to sit down with Charles Fairman's book, um, uh, about uh, the Supreme Court in Reconstruction. Um, and uh, I remember looking at the table of contents and thinking, um, is there anything in this book that interests me? Um, and the two things that really interested me were um, Jefferson Davis's treason trial, um, about which there was a little bit in the book, and um, Texas versus White, and uh, which I had always been interested in. And it occurred to me that maybe the reason I was interested in both of those things was that, that possibly they were both about secession. Um, and I wasn't sure about Davis's trial. So I did a little bit of digging and, um, lo and behold, um, secession was indeed, um, one of the primary issues in his trial. And so, um, I started with the question, why do we get um, an answer to the secession question in one case, but not the other when both of them um, were going to present the secession issue for the courts to resolve? Hmm. Well, that's one way to get to a project. Um, kinda, I kind of feel pressure, bad at your advisor. Pressure, just, pressure helped. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel bad as your advisor just said no to your first <laughs> idea. But hey, you got a good book out of it, I guess. Yeah, I guess determination. But this was this was much better suited anyway. So, yeah. Well, to get into your book, you you speak in the introduction about kind of the larger historiography on the Civil War and everything like that. And you've kind of just talked about it briefly, briefly there. So how does your book fit into, you know, previous Civil War studies and what is it kind of pushing back against? It's a great question. Um, I, uh, so, so my most flippant answer is that it doesn't engage with um, a whole lot of historiography. Um, and, and I mean that in particularly in terms of uh, the secession question and um, how previous historians and legal scholars have discussed this. So, um, so I certainly engage with larger discussions um, about Reconstruction and um, the law during Reconstruction. But um, on the particular topic um, about secession, what I was dealing with with the historiography was an extremely broad historiography, but it was extremely thin. And by that, I mean, um, you know, generations and generations of scholars had said that um, the Civil War clearly 
um, resolves the constitutionality of secession. Um, and if you have any more doubts about that, the Supreme Court declared secession to be unconstitutional in Texas versus white. Um, and so that's pretty much the extent of the historiography, right? There wasn't, um, this issue really was sort of just papered over, um, and people sort of assume that the war settles secession and that's all that there is to say about it. So, um, I indeed decided that I was going to say war. Hmm. And it, it seems to me that that kind of seems like a kind of very, you know, big oversight in the previous historiography. Um, almost so much that I would feel like if, if it was me researching it, that I would just be like, is there actually anything there? And yet there is yeah. something there. Yeah. So, right. Um, I was I was plagued by many moments of self-doubt, you know, I am, I am an academic. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so, um, that was, that was the story I sort of knew, um, about the historiography. I had never really, um, considered the question before, but the deeper I got into it, um, the, the more, um, I saw that this was indeed really how it had been treated, um, in the previous historiography. Um, even, um, a lot of the books that dealt with Davis, right? Or uh, there was a really uh, great article from 1926 on Davis's trial. Um, and it just didn't really, they, it dealt really with the mechanics of the case more than, you know, the bigger issue um, that it represented. Yeah. And I mean, it's always nice when you're trying to figure out whether or not your research project is kind of going to be fruitful. And the closest thing you could find is from something almost a century ago. Um, It's it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I remember when I first started reading this thinking, wow, like this is not something that I really thought about. I was vaguely familiar with Texas v. White from, you know, undergraduate constitutional law classes, but the kind of larger question of secession might not have been settled is like, it's very interesting and it's, it's almost frightening. Yes. Did I agree too quickly? Yes, (laughs) it was, it was sort of frightening. Um, I, so I actually, this was a question I sort of, I thought about when I was writing the book and I think more towards the end when I sort of swam up from, you know, the, 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 all the research and sort of, uh, you know, got close to the surface again. And I thought about, you know, what does all this mean? I have to say something in the book. And then I started thinking about, well, why is it that this has been missing from the historiography. Um, And so um, I don't, I mean, I don't know definitively, but one of the things that, uh, that I came, that I came to think was that it's precisely because it was, it's such a frightening issue, right? I mean, what if, you know, who picks at that scab besides me? Um, I think that was, that was, um, that has, led to this impulse to leave it, um, sort of untouched. I'm not sure that it explains the entire impulse now, but, um, you know, at the time of the end of the war, um, I think that, uh, this was a palpable question, but it was something that people also wanted to avoid. Um, and so, uh, one of the things I deal with in the book is, you know, how really upsetting it was for people of, um, you know, who had just fought the civil war to think about, well, um, what would it mean if the war didn't settle this question, right? I mean, how could we open it again? And so, you know, there are sort of very uncomfortable feelings about um, how should they interpret, you know, the outcome of the war um, in terms of uh, thinking about uh, its legal implications. Um, that's something I, I dealt with in the book. Yeah, I can just imagine, you know, living through that time and thinking to yourself that, you know, a war that literally split the United States in two might not have actually done anything. Yeah. So, I mean, so um, I'm a big fan of irony, right? Um, That's that's one of our primary tools as historians. Um, But I I certainly was thinking the same thing when I went back and, and started thinking about what would this mean, right? So if you're a person, so let's say you had actually lost somebody during the war or fought it yourself, um, 
what would it mean to suggest, you know, you fought this war for nothing and this question is going to be relitigated in the courts? Um, that was that's that's one thing. But then there's also this this other um sort of polar opposite impulse that I also have, which is, well, what kind of society are we if we just say, oh, well, let's just settle questions, legal questions um, that were, you know, um, deeply debated. Let's just settle them on the battlefield. And so I think um, I was really dealing with, you know, these two impulses that I had when I was thinking about the question, but I think also people um, in um, the 1860s also had. Yeah. And so considering how, you know, volatile this potential, you know, treason case could be, you know, obviously it, it would probably seem at the time to be kind of the case of the century. And so who's kind of rushing to each side, to the government side and to Jefferson, Jefferson Davis's side to represent them? You know, at one point you mentioned that Thaddeus Stevens wants to represent Davis. And for our listeners in particular who might not be familiar with this, you know, with someone like Thaddeus Stevens, could you briefly explain who this is and why that is kind of so surprising? Yeah, that was, I mean, that totally surprised me um, too. So Thaddeus Stevens was um, one of the most radical of the radical Republicans. Um, I'm going to put him as, you know, either one or two um, of the two most radical Republicans. And he um, he's one of the uh, few people um, in government at this time who believed in um, an actual racial equality um, he believes very strongly in um, a program of reconstruction that is going to remake um, remake the South. Um, actually, he, he actually wants to achieve something that looks like real change, real racial equality um, in the South post-war. Um, he thinks this is really our chance to remake the image of the United States into something um, that we want to have. So he's a real racial egalitarian. Um, he had served in Congress um, with Davis before, but they, they certainly weren't friends. Um, but but yeah, he's probably somebody that um, I if I were going to imagine somebody further apart from Davis on the political spectrum, it would be hard to think of anybody other than than Thaddeus Stevens. As to your larger question about um, who about, about this case and how important it was um, and who um who was sort of aligning on um, different sides of the case. Um, that was, that was something that was really interesting to me. So I had never really thought much about Davis's case before. Um, and one thing that really surprised me, I mean, it shouldn't have right in retrospect, but this case was, I mean, certainly people thought this was going to be the test case on secession. Um, people didn't think about, you know, Texas versus white being that, um, this was in the newspapers every day, um, for years, uh, every newspaper had something to say about it. Um, every, almost everybody's papers that I looked at had something to say about it. Um, so it certainly was, um, something that occupied, um, Americans attention, um, at the time and actually beyond, um, beyond the United States, um, there were, these were, there were lots of discussions about it in foreign newspapers. Um, you know, this, this certainly the world was looking at this case. Um, but in terms of who uh, was uh, working on both sides of the case, um, that's something I deal with quite a bit um, in the book. Um, so uh, the government, um, Andrew Johnson's government, uh, the, uh, the attorney general's office is working on it on um, behalf of uh, the government. Um, and uh, they also hire a couple of um, attorneys, which was common at the time. Um, but uh, Davis's attorneys um, were also, he had a, a huge number of attorneys. His main attorney is um, a New Yorker named Charles O'Connor, um, who was probably the most famous lawyer in the United States at the time, although his name is not really known today. Um, and he really directed um, Davis's defense, but there are a whole ton of other lawyers, um, many of whom were Northerners, um, as well as some Southerners who were involved in this. Um, Thaddeus Stevens is certainly the most surprising um, member, but he doesn't actually um, join the Davis defense team. He offers to do it, 
um, but he doesn't, um, but he ultimately uh, did not, um, Davis is not interested in having him um, represent him. And so who ends up representing Davis and why does, you know, why does someone like Thaddeus Stevens, you know, end up asking him and Davis is just like, yeah, no, I'm going to go with someone else. And who is that person? Yeah. So, so Stevens doesn't offer right away. Um, I'll say that, but, uh, so what happens is that, uh, so Davis, uh, Davis flees the Confederate capital of Richmond, um, in May of 1865. Um, and he's captured, um, by union forces who, uh, are chasing him after Lincoln's assassination. Um, and the government catches up with him at the end of May, um, and thereafter he's put in prison and the government doesn't quite know what they're going to charge him with, whether they're going to charge him with treason or with violations of the law of war. Um, and he's put in prison, um, and he stays there for, uh, two years and he, his wife who was arrested or who, sorry, who was with him when he's arrested, she's not arrested, but, um, she immediately contacts, um, prominent Northern lawyers, um, and uh, Northern friends to help um, in Davis's defense. So she contacts um, Charles O'Connor. She contacts Horace Greeley um, as well. Uh, so O'Connor was a New Yorker, but he is basically a Southern sympathizer, I would say. Um, he, uh, he, he had been... Um, a peace Democrat during the war. Um, he kind of is shunned, um, by New York society, um, for these views during the war. He had been pro-slavery. Um, so he, he works on the case. Um, a number of the other Northerners who work on the case are also, um, Southern sympathizers, but not everybody, right? So, um, I mentioned Horace Greeley, um, Mrs. Davis really, really appeals to Horace Greeley, um, and his, you know, I guess, uh, uh, chivalric impulses. Right. Um, and he, uh, he helps her, but I think one thing that's really interesting about that is that, um, there's certainly this idea of, uh, reconciliation going on. Right. And so, um, Horace Greeley thinks, well, you know, Davis fought against us in the war, right? But um, it doesn't show what we want to show in terms of reconstructing the union if we put him to death. Um, and so he wants um, Davis basically to be pardoned um, by the president. Um, so, so there are these impulses for Northerners to um, represent Davis. And so there's somebody like Horace Greeley who thinks um, Davis's case can be a way to reconcile North and South. Um, but then there's all this other sort of interesting dynamic going on. That was not um, Thaddeus Stevens's impulse. Um, Thaddeus Stevens is interested in the case because of the legal implications um, for secession um, and the connection between secession and reconstruction. So one of the, the really interesting arguments that's going on at the time is about um, is about uh, what the legal basis for reconstruction is. So reconstruction is is um, on a pretty uh, shaky legal foundation um, in terms of the federal government um, basically running the southern states. Um, during Reconstruction. And uh, uh, Congress is really looking for what's the legal foundation for this. And one of the legal foundations, um, and this is Thaddeus Stevens's baby, is um, that the Southern states um, should be treated as conquered territory. And if they're treated as conquered territory, um, then the Union can use the law of war um, against them, the law of conquest, and can basically remake um, laws in um, in the states of the former Confederacy to uh, to be commensurate with you know um, what Stevens is looking for in terms of a more um, racially egalitarian United States. Um, and he thinks, well, if we can use the law of conquest um, to do this, then. He's got some use for the secession argument. So this is sort of the irony of all of this. So he says um, to himself, um, well, if uh, if the southern states have been conquered um, through the war, 
uh, well, that must suggest that at some point they actually left the union in order for us to use the law of conquest. Um, and so that would suggest that secession um, had been effective in carrying the Southern states out of the union. And so that is even says, well, working backwards from this theory, if I can use Davis's case to show that secession, if, if not, not precisely legal was effective, um, then I can use the law of conquest um, to remake the South in the image that I want it to be in the post-war period. I should mention that Davis was, I, I met, well, I did mention that Davis is not really on board with this. Um, Davis says um, something like, um, that would be a good argument for me, but not for the South, um, which is why he refuses Stevenson's offer. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting how everyone is just trying to use this case, as is kind of usual in, you know, big highlight uh, cases like this for their own purposes. But it's kind of it's interesting the way that secession can kind of serve both ends of the the political spectrum at this point. Yeah, yeah. So so um, to to both of those points. Right. So um, it's really fascinating how. Um, there are these connections between the most radical um, of the radical Republicans and the secessionists, right? That they um, that these legal arguments intersect in ways that that are surprising if you think about, you know, the political valences of them. Um, and so, and and they saw the connections, and they are totally willing to use them and to exploit them. Um, and uh, that stuff I found fascinating in the book. Um, in writing the book. And one thing, and another thing I really, uh, I really was interested in writing this book is, uh, lawyers and lawyering. Um, so that was, that was quite important to me. Um, when I was thinking about, you know, how do I put this story together? And so I really tried to tell it, um, from the perspective, um, of the lawyers. Um, I should, I should probably not admit to this, but it, I, when I was first writing this book, I had this vision in my head that I could you know, I could write this story and it would be like a historical John Grisham novel, right? Where you play off of, you know, what does one side know about the case? How does one, one lawyer sort of strategize about the case? And, um, you know, and, and how does the other one sort of play off um, what one lawyer is strategizing? Um, I, I certainly don't think that I pulled off a historical John Grisham novel, but that was sort of the, the impulse in writing it was to, to really delve into, you know, legal strategizing and how important um, that is in, you know, explaining these bigger outcomes. Well, speaking about the lawyers and kind of this idea of like, who knows what, who knows the strategy and all that stuff. I found one of the most interesting parts of this is O'Connor, you know, Davis's lawyer, chief lawyer, his overall strategy for this um, and kind of as you as you say, at one point, he uses the secession argument as a, quote, nuclear deterrence. And so what is his overall strategy and how is and kind of going off of this, you know, theme that you the idea for the book that you had? How is he using the fact that people don't know what he's doing, might know what he's doing, think they know what he's doing to his advantage? Yeah, I mean, he's really good at this. Um, so, uh, so I mentioned that that Thaddeus Stevens um, had some use for um, for secession in terms of uh, coming up with his argument for Reconstruction, um, but. I would say that that is not uh, the mainstream view. I mean, uh, mainstream view of um, most Northerners or most Northern Republicans um, at the um, during during this period, right? So um, the mainstream view really is: well, secession never happened, right? Um, we don't want secession um, to be considered legal in any way because if it is, um, then that that really undermines the whole theory of the war, right? Um, that uh, if secession was legal, then we fought this, this goes back to some of your earlier points. We thought we, we fought the whole war, you know, maybe for an illegal reason, um, something like that. Um, it's really very frightening to them. Um, and so O'Connor really understands this and he understands that, you know, the last thing that the Johnson administration wants is to lose Davis's case on this secession question. You know, um, can you imagine, you know, how bad you look as a lawyer 
if you cannot convict the president of the Confederacy um, for treason, right? So the Constitution defines treason as levying war against the United States. Um, it's 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 a no brainer that that. Jefferson Davis levied war against the United States. I mean, that is his job as the president of the Confederacy. Um, and so uh, the, the lawyers um, on the government side, you know, they think, oh, it's going to be, I think initially they think, oh, it's going to be really easy to get a conviction in Davis's case. And um, I'm going to look like a hero. I'm going to look like the one who established the legal foundation of the Union war effort. Um, and O'Connor um, realizes that, yeah, that's very important to them. But what's even more important to them is not losing, right? Um, in, in terms of how bad it looks for them if they can't convict Davis of treason and they get, um, an outcome in the case that looks like a backdoor vindication of the right of secession and the Southern war effort. Um, and so O'Connor, um, exploits this ruthlessly, right? And so he, really looks, you know, at the lawyers who are working for the prosecution and he thinks about, you know, what their motivations are um, and um, how dedicated they are to this case, you know, how much other stuff they have going on. Um, and so, as you mentioned, I, I talk about how he has this sort of deterrence theory, right, which is that he, he realizes that uh, the most important thing for the government um, is not to risk this outcome where they potentially get a jury verdict or even a judge saying that secession is legal. And so what he manages to do um, is to exploit the government's fears, the prosecutor's fears um, of getting the wrong outcome in the case to engineer the case eventually going away. So um, he keeps getting delays in the case, and that's really his strategy. He wants to stretch out the timetable of this case. So um, if you look at, you know, even newspaper coverage of this case in 1865, um, northern newspapers are extremely angry about the war. Um, and, you know, they want to they want to hang Davis. They, you know, they want to parade, you know, his dead body through the streets. Um, they uh, they there's you know, there's this idea that, you know, they're going to vindicate themselves um, and Davis's conviction and hanging is going to be part of that. Um, but um, O'Connor realizes that if he can get public opinion to sort of turn um, and make it politically infeasible um, for the government to convict Davis, right, if he stretches out the timetable long enough, people start getting more and more upset about, you know, how Davis should have gotten his day in court um, to vindicate secession. Um, and O'Connor really exploits this. So he, he stretches out the timetable such that um, that public opinion can build in Davis's favor. Um, and so what he does is he suggests to the government that, um, that Davis's team um, is going to make the case about secession and indeed that they think that they're going to win um, such that he can convince um, the government's lawyers that it's a bad idea to bring this case. Yeah. And it's, it's one heck of a bluff on his part um, because you can imagine if the government risky. had been able to actually, yeah, it's very risky. If the yeah. government had been able to actually get the case, you know, kind of going very quickly, you know, Davis probably would have, there'd have been more of a chance that he, he would have been found guilty. And so, you know, O'Connor's strategy is, is really kind of hanging Davis out there. No pun intended. <laughs> so, so, uh, so fair enough. Um, I think that's right. Um, and I, but I also think that, um, that the, the person that he has to convince the most, um, and I don't have, I didn't have great evidence about this, but the, the person who was um, the most uh, convinced that it's a good idea for Davis to go to trial is Davis himself, right? So uh, during the war, Davis had been quite unpopular um, as a Confederate president, and um, he sees this case as a way to, you know, to sort of win back Southern affection. Um, and so he keeps saying, oh, I want to go to trial and I want to be a martyr for, you know, the Confederate cause. And um, I'm either going to, you know, 
prove that secession was legal or I will die, you know, for my convictions. Um, and so getting Davis to go along with this is, is, uh, is actually O'Connor's maybe biggest problem, um, is, is that, you know, is that, uh, that Davis maybe doesn't want this to be a bluff. Um, he is more than willing to go to trial, um, knowing, um, you know, that, that he could be hanged. Um, and, uh, what, uh, what O'Connor's strategy is really is avoidance. And that was, um, you know, that isn't initially what Davis wants to happen. So, um, O'Connor worked on him. Mrs. Davis also worked on him. She doesn't think it's a good idea for him to be a martyr, um, if he can help it. Um, so, uh, so there is that, you know, that sort of, uh, personal thing that's always, um, in the background. I think O'Connor, for O'Connor, it's important to save Davis's life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I could understand that O'Connor's like probably really having a hard time trying to convince, uh, Davis that this is the best route, especially, you know, as you pointed out, Davis is trying to vindicate the South and everything. Mm -hmm. And so, what the, one thing that I liked about your book a lot is that it doesn't just look at, you know, the lawyers and, you know, the government officials. It doesn't just look at those people, but it, it kind of it brings into larger culture. And one part of doing that is um, your discussion of trial by battle. And you've you've kind of brought this in a few times already. But what is this and how does it kind of, you know, take on a life of its own during this time, you know, this kind of ancient, you know, uh, idea kind of come to life in the mid 1800s. Yeah. So, um, so, so I, I, I dealt with the lawyers. I also looked, um, you know, uh, quite a bit at the larger legal culture. So you mentioned trial by battle. Um, one of the things that is also, um, you know, a very important idea that's, that's a contrasting idea that's going on, um, at the same time is also the, the importance of the rule of law, right? So, um, so there are these sort of competing ideas, um, you know, in American culture, um, in American legal culture, um, at this time, right? So, um, people, uh, were talking about, um, the civil war, um, as, uh, quote, a trial by battle, right? Which, um, as you mentioned is, um, you know, a medieval legal concept, um, where God is supposed to, you know, vindicate one, uh, you know, one litigant, um, or the other, um, in a trial. Um, and it's, it's, it's like a form of the, the ordeal. It's kind of like, you know, being burned with a poker or, you know, uh, seeing, you know, throwing a witch in the pond and seeing if she floats something like that. Um, and, uh, this is this analogy, um, where people kept um, talking about invoking the idea of trial by battle. Um, I saw this all over the place um, when I was doing this research, um, is that they they kept comparing the war itself to this, this, um, this medieval uh, legal concept um, of trial by battle. So trial by battle didn't exist, um, you know, in the United States in the very civilized, you know, in 19th century, this is their understanding of the world. Um, and yet they think about the war as, um, hearkening back to these old ideas. And so they, they kind of are caught, you know, in between thinking about, well, the war is a trial by battle and God has a hand in it and God settled, um, the question, um, for the union, um, God, settles the civil war, uh, settles that the constitutionality of that, that secession is unconstitutional. Um, and they think about, um, the war in that kind of context. And so they think, you know, this is, um, this is the way that the legal session, the legal question, you know, gets settled. Um, but at the same time, they also are thinking about restoring the rule of law in the United States. So I would say that you know, people are, um, I don't know, a little bit schizophrenic about this thinking. And, um, and it's not just, you know, different people have different ideas. I think that, um, you know, the same people could have 
you know, conflicting ideas about this where what they would think, um, okay, well, you know, I'm going to think about the war as settling legal questions, but at the same time, um, I realize that that idea is a threat to the rule of law and how I think about law in 19th century America. Um, and so, um, when people are thinking about Davis's trial and they're thinking about the war um, and they're thinking about these two different options for potentially settling the legal question um, about secession, right? So um, maybe the war settles the question or maybe we should get, you know, an outcome in the court of law that actually settles this question. And so they, they're kind of, you know, um, going back and forth about, you know, which one of those things should stand. It it almost seems to me, and may, it maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of trial by battle idea, as compared to the rule of law, at least in the kind of popular imagination of of the war, it almost seems like that one kind of came out on top because, you know, I think if you asked anyone, they would think, well, yeah, secession's unconstitutional. Well, maybe not anyone, but, you know, some people secession's unconstitutional because the union won the war. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, I, I, uh, I think that, um, I think that that is a lot of the way that we think about it. And, um, it, I do, I, I, I do think that, um, it's much less troubling to us to come up with that type of idea than it would have been to them. Right. So, you know, if you, um, if you say to your mom, well, the civil war settles, uh, settled the question, um, of secession, right? I'm not sure that, you know, that she thinks of that as a threat to the rule of law, right? Um, probably because it's so far in the past. Um, but I think for them, this seemed very palpable, right? That, you know, not only had they had this massive loss of life, but it really is just, um, it, it really challenges who they think they are as Americans, right? So they think of the, the war as a massive dislocation, you know, in terms of living your life. But I think it's also, you know, a massive dislocation in terms of people's thinking about, you know, who they are as Americans, right? Um, that, uh, that maybe the Civil War has settled this question of secession's constitutionality. But what does that say about us as a country, that this is the way that we settle legal questions? You know, they um, this is America where, you know, everything is every every political question becomes a constitutional question and the courts are supposed to settle it. Um, but for them, I think that that's that's sort of that's an idea that's out there, but it's deeply frightening um, and it challenges, you know, who they think they are. And I think, um, you know, in thinking about it today, um, I do think that you're right that um, that we think about it this way, but sort of the the terribleness of of thinking, oh, well, we settle legal questions by killing 700,000 people has sort of faded um, from our memories. Um, I'm thinking of a, you know, a good example of this. Um, and somebody I deal with just a little bit in the book is um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, who, you know, he should show up in every legal history book. But um, Holmes uh, was um, a union veteran. And he, um, he went to war, you know, right after he graduated from college. Um, he's very young and idealistic. Um, and, uh, he comes out of the war. He had been, he, he got wounded quite a bit during the war and he is really just scarred, um, by the experience of war. And as he thinks about it later on in his life, you know, he thinks, um, he starts thinking about, you know, the fact that all of these young lives were consumed, um, by the war. And, you know, what led to this was, you know, sort of deep moral convictions about particular, you know, um, political and legal issues. And he thinks that it's very disturbing um, for him, you know, that this is that this is actually, you know, how Americans had ultimately settled this question. Yeah, I mean, it's just a kind of fascinating thing to think about, especially when thinking about, you know, what Americans are contemplating at the time and kind of speaking about, you know, people at the time. And you you talked about this briefly before, you know, how does Davis's public image change over the course of, you know, this trial trying to get off the ground and everything like that. And what does that tell us about Americans' attitudes towards the war? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. So, um, so, so, uh, so at the time, you know, so, so Davis, when he's captured, there's this, this, uh, this, uh, this image that doesn't really go away, which is that, you know, uh, there are these rumors that Davis is captured in, you know, in women's clothes, who's trying to run away from um, the army. Um, Davis is very angry about, about, you know, this, this idea. Um, but, you know, he's a little bit of a ridiculous figure in that way. Um, but it's certainly the case that, you know, that Americans are extremely angry. Um, and I'm talking particularly about um, Northerners, but they're extremely angry about Davis. So there's, you know, um, there are all these letters uh, uh, to the president saying, you know, um, from Northerners who are saying, you know, um, I'm a rope maker. Let me make the rope that will hang Davis. Um, people are extremely angry. Um, there was a mother who whose son had died at Andersonville and she sends um, President Johnson a picture of her son. Um, and she says, you know, if you are ever moved to let Jefferson Davis go free, um, look at this picture of my son. Um, and so uh, people are extremely upset, you know, at the end of the war. Um, but Davis's image really changes. And this is this was actually part of O'Connor's strategy um, when he's thinking about, you know, his um, how he's going to bluff his way towards Davis's freedom. Um, he thinks about Davis's public image. Um, so he hires some people actually to um, or he's engaged in, in hiring of some people to write books um, about uh, Davis. There's, you know, there's a propaganda machine um, that goes on that talks about, you know, um, well, you know, this is going to tear the country apart. Um, Davis is treated quite badly in prison or I, I mean, I don't know that it's, you know, um, by 19th century standards, how bad it is. Davis complains a lot about, you know, how terrible it is. And it, it's true that he was in bad health. Um, and uh, so uh, Davis is sort of, you know, um, a, a brittle, you know, prisoner um, who's treated poorly um, by the government. Get, that gets a lot of traction in the press. Um, but also there's this spirit of reconciliation. And one thing that was extremely surprising to me in doing the research for this book was how quickly the anger against Jefferson Davis really fades. So you track you know, sort of what newspaper articles are saying about him. Um, I would say that, you know, through the end of 1865, people are extremely angry. Um, you know, they're calling for Davis's hanging, his parade, parade him through the streets in women's clothes. Um, and then that just really quickly drops off. And newspaper coverage, even in radical Republican newspapers, um, starts turning um, and, you know, saying, uh, that Davis should go free. Um, and this is the best way to, you know, bring North and South back together. Um, there are lots of Northerners who are saying things like, um, you know, if, uh, if we had lost the revolution, um, you know, Washington would have been a traitor too. Um, and then, and that discourse, you know, um, starts, starts in about, you know, in, in the early part of 1866. And, you know, by the time that Davis, um, Davis's trial is, um, ends in um, late 1868 um, and 1869, um, Northerners are really just quite relieved um, about the fact that, you know, that this is, that he's not going to be a martyr for the Confederacy and that the country, you know, that this is going to help um, heal the division in the country. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 honestly it's it's really interesting the way that you can track the kind of reconciliation narrative just through his trial. And since, you know, the trial doesn't come about, you know, Davis is successful in that part. His lawyers are successful in that part. You speak about the case and you've brought it up a couple of times already. Texas v. White. So why is this case kind of important to, you know, Davis's story and the story of secession in the United States? Yeah. So, um, so I, I mentioned that I started with the Davis case and Texas versus white. Um, and then Davis took over the whole project. Um, Texas versus white, um, is an epilogue in my book and, um, and I'm glad it is because, um, that's, I think the attention it, it deserves. Um, so you mentioned that you had studied it as an undergraduate, um, which is probably more than, you know, than most students study it, um, you know, uh, even in, you know, constitutional law. But, um, but I think that, you know, if lawyers are thinking about 
in succession question and how it gets settled, you know, they may say, first of all, it gets settled in the battlefield. But second of all, it gets settled in this case, um, which is a Supreme Court case um, in 1869, um, Texas versus White, um, which is decided by uh, Chief Justice Chase, who was set to preside over Davis's case as well. Um, and Texas versus White, um, you know, the, the primary issue in the case is kind of not that exciting. It's about the repayment of government bonds. Um, but it does, um, it, it, in the course of the opinion, um, uh, Chief Justice Chase is moved to talk about both about secession and about um, reconstruction. And uh, the, the issue that, that makes this important um, in Texas versus White, um, he's got to confront the question of whether or not Texas is a state. Um, and so, uh, one of the things that he says is that, you know, Texas never removed itself from the United States, um, through secession, um, in 1861. And in the, you know, in the course of the opinion, um, he says this kind of like a throwaway. It gets about two paragraphs worth of discussion, um, in the case. Um, he doesn't really treat the legal argument seriously, um, but, you know, the Supreme Court um, has said that secession is unconstitutional. That is in the U.S. reports. Um, it wasn't even argued in Texas versus White. Um, and there were a couple of other cases uh, where the same issue is basically presented beforehand. Um, and Chase really looked for, you know, a way to sort of plop this in um, to a case and have it be in the U.S. reports, um, in my opinion. Um, and so this case really, you know, stands for, you know, in, you know, the the lexicon of um, American constitutional history um, as the case where uh, the Supreme Court declared secession to be unconstitutional, which I think is right. Um, but it's really an afterthought. It's a way for, you know, um, Chief Justice Chase to kind of put a period on the sentence, I think, um, more than a real um, investigation um, into um, into secession. Um, and this was not a case that really was any, on anybody's radar screen. So, you know, not controversial, really, or um, relatively uncontroversial um, at the time. And so um, I talk a little bit um, in the book about, you know, how uh, the case was sort of designed, I think, to, you know, um, to be, you know, uh, a way to kind of close the door on this question without it, you know, being disruptive in the way that Davis's case um, had threatened um, to be. Yeah, and I remember thinking um, when I studied that case in, you know, a undergrad constitutional law class. And I, I think it was just like one of like maybe two cases that we looked at in a week. I remember thinking that, as you just said, it almost seemed like an afterthought. And because of the structure of a constitutional law class as opposed to a history class, you know, we're just looking at the case and I'm thinking to myself, like, why does this not seem that important to anyone at the time? <laughs> and your book really helps put that in perspective. Yeah, I mean, so, so they didn't, um, this, this secession issue is not even briefed, you know, before the court, right? Um, I mean, this is really, I think, Chase just reaching for something where he's going to, where he's going to say something. Um, but, but I did talk a little bit about, you know, that, that idea that you have um, and how it gets constructed. Um, over time. So this isn't something I really delved into. Um, you know, if somebody is really looking for a thesis topic or something, there's certainly more to be done. Um, but uh, I, I, I talked a little bit about, you know, how um, Texas versus white is seen throughout the rest of the 19th century, didn't trace it, you know, much beyond that. But um, I talk about how uh, I think Chase's goal is for exactly what you said to happen. Right. Which is that um, if you don't examine it right today, you think of Texas versus white as any number of, you know, Supreme Court cases that you're going to study in a history class or a law class. Right. So, um, you know, it's just the same as Marbury or something like this it just sort of fades into your consciousness as standing there for a proposition. You're not going to actually examine like, how did it get in that book? <laughs> right. Um, so I think it was important for him to have something you know, that looks like a regular legal decision to sort of um, be the ending point um, for this question. And, you know, over time, 
um, you know, all of the fighting about this question fades and what's left with what we're really left with is, you know, the things that we're normally dealing with, which is, you know, what's the Supreme Court opinion on it set? Yeah, I mean, the book is just great. And, you know, before we finish off this interview, I'm just going to, you know, tell everyone again, like, go out, read this book, buy this book, hopefully, you know, uh, you know, it's Dr. Cynthia Nicoletti, Secession on Trial. Make sure to go and read it. So to finish it off, what can we expect from you in the future? What what might you be working on right now? Um, so I am working on my second book. Um, and so um, having looked at Secession in my first book, I thought, um, well, you know, go big or go home. Um, and so uh, if, if we know two things about the legal history of the Civil War, we know one that it settles, um, it settles the secession question in, union, in the union's favor, and it also kills slavery. And so I'm actually, I'm, I'm really interested in um, questions about um, slavery. Um, so my second book, um, I'm dealing with um, how it is uh, that uh, the Civil War um, uh, manages uh, to um, emancipate, how emancipation actually works um, in the aftermath um, of the, during and in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, and I'm also interested in questions of land redistribution um, so what I've, I've done, um, some research, I'm still working on it, but, uh, the goal there is to explain, um, how it is that, um, that the war settles the slavery question and why it is that land redistribution, um, never gets off the ground. Well, I think we could certainly use a book like that these days. I would certainly be interested in reading it myself. And when that comes out, hopefully we can have you on the program again. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I can't wait for it actually to be done. Yeah. <laughs> that would be exciting. Well, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.